And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf with special guest Lily Yu on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> well, our, okay, our guest tonight, uh, if, if she hasn't given up completely after that, is Lily, uh, e, Lily Yu. Hi, Lily. Hi, you know, I just realized that that sounds exactly like somebody throwing themselves out of the sixth floor of a hotel room. <laughs> it does. You see, I'm not I, doing it right. It's supposed to sound like the opening of the, of the Muppet Show. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> okay, that's not any less, better, is it? A little less despair, then, maybe. <laughs> well, but, uh, see, the problem is it's, like, it's, it's an audio podcast, not a video podcast. So I can't like flail my arms like a Muppet to make it all work out. I'm sure they have a box of sound effects labeled Muppet Flailing Arms. Ah, <laughs> oh, someone's going to send us that now. I'm sure they will. Those are the kind of people who listen to our podcast, the kind of people who have spare sound recordings of Muppets flailing their arms. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could get... This is really divergent from where we're going to go. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could get somebody from the Muppet Show, to, who, you know, the guy who does it, to actually record it for us? That would be fun. The, the guy... The, it's probably Jim Anson, and he's probably dead. No, they're still doing it. Well, that, yeah, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, let us move away from the oddity of the, top, the, the beginning of our show. And it's fantastic that you're here to join us, Lily. It's wonderful to talk to you. It's very kind of you to invite me. Thank you. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, uh, let me start by congratulating you belatedly on what is one of the most successful sort of science fiction fantasy story debuts in, in decades. I mean, you get, it's not your first story, but certainly the cartographer wasp and the anarchist bees got a lot of award nominations and, uh, and, and got you the Campbell award last year's Campbell award. Um, have they announced this year's yet? No. Yeah, not yet. Okay. No, but this congratulations. Weekend, but, yeah. Thank you very much. So, and I think, Sorry, Lily? It was only about five months ago that I decided I was not actually hallucinating. <laughs> Has it been fairly surreal? Because, I mean, your first story was published back in 2007, but it's just been a handful of stories in the last few years, really, that have come out. Yeah, I started publishing in 2005. Yeah? I was 15, uh, yes, and it did not help that I actually heard out heard about the the nebula domination secondhand through a text message from my friend who was called by whoever was calling around the nebulas center oh. yeah. prior to the juggling show performance so i was pretty sure i was dreaming the entire thing <laughs> that feeling did not go away <laughs> and and yet you know i mean this the story fantastic story and it has really been embraced by the field that must have been a surprise a bit disorienting. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I, I look at it, and I'm, I'm pretty surprised that I wrote that. Do you feel like it sits with the rest of what you want to work, want to write? I have no idea what I want to write. Hmm. Uh, I, I got another 40 years. I can figure it out. <laughs> That's a good attitude, I suppose. But you, now, now, you've been coming to the International Conference on the Fantastic for, what, two or three years now, at least? Or maybe more than that? Three years. I think three, three years. years. Okay. And... It seems to me the first time I met you, you were actually going to be a biophysicist or something. Oh, my misbegotten youth. Um, <laughs> Some people play pool, but yeah. You've got that backwards, Lily. Most people think their misbegotten youth is wanting to be a writer, and then they realize, okay, I'll get a job in biophysics. That sounds, that sounds more sensible, you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> what, what led you to abandon biophysics for literature? I don't, I, it was just not something I could spend eight hours of every day of my life doing or more for the rest of my life. And uh, so the the summer I made the decision, I was actually doing geo, uh, geosciences uh, at the Australian National University. And I did, I made a complete, I botched up the job pretty badly. I was horrible at it. And <laughs> that fall, I went back and was like, I can't, I, I can't do this well. And I switched to English. I'm not sure that was the right decision, but that gave me more writing time. So how long were you in Canberra for? About two months. Wow. Gosh. It was a beautiful place. Very much like suburban New Jersey in, very, in many ways, actually. Yeah, I was, I was only there about a month and a half ago. And it is a lovely place. I mean... Not well-loved around our country, but nonetheless, lovely. Um, and so what was, the, what was the actual progression when you just sort of, you know, you did the thing at the ANU and sort of decided you weren't going to be a, bio, a biophysicist. What, was it the story coming out that pushed you towards literature, or was that always where you were going, do you think? I always knew I was going to be a writer. I just did not know what my day job would be. I always had a very pragmatic view about writing. It was not going to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. That was clear. Yeah. So the question was what, what I was going to do on the, um, in the meantime while I was writing. But you're going you're – actually, you're going to Cornell now to, 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 to get a, a doctorate in literature or an MFA or what? Doctorate in literature? The MFA program didn't want me. The As MFA I said, program didn't want you? Okay, I want to hear about this. I've got a thing about MFA programs. This is more <laughs> ammo for me. What happens? I am about to get blacklisted, aren't I? Okay. Uh, I, I applied to Cornell <laughs> – MFA, PhD, a double degree program twice, got rejected twice. That's about it. Nothing spectacular. Do you wow. think it had anything to do with the fact that you had written genre stories? I, I've never talked to an MFA selection committee, so I have no idea how they think. Possibly I was, I, perhaps my application smelled bad. I'm not sure. It varies. It varies from one program to the other, and I know there are people... I mean, I shouldn't badmouth MFA programs, although I've done it before on this podcast. And there are some good ones. There are ones that are run by people who are very sympathetic to what we do. There's Brian Evanson and Brown. There's obviously Chip Delaney. There's Kessel Kelly. So there are plenty of programs like that around. But some of them still have a fairly archaic attitude toward anything that doesn't look like The New Yorker. I have no idea. You would know much more than I do. Well, okay. Um, let me get back to the question that I actually wanted to start. And this is this is one of many reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast, but it has to do with unfinished conversations. And the last two or three times <laughs> we've run into each other, we didn't. I mean, you, you were here in town at the um, uh, Hugo ceremony last uh, year, and we talked for like five minutes in the lobby. And then at the and international conference, pardon, go ahead. And I got to put a mushroom on your head. <laughs> yes, you did. That's absolutely true. And somebody <laughs> took a picture of it, too. Sorry Was about that. You, do you have no, a picture of it? Okay. I think it was Stacy. Ah, I will have to ask her about that. See, Gary, I will now picture you as Radagast the Brown rather than anything else. You're just determined to get me distracted from what I want to talk about here, aren't you? Sorry, okay. I interrupted. Finish the question. Mushrooms aside, uh, that was, uh, the, the, the Hugo thing is uh, – there was a Hugo nomination for that story too, wasn't there? Uh, so, yeah. But – at the International Conference of the Fantastic in March, uh, we finally had a chance. A small group of us went back up to my room, and we were going to actually drink some Chicago-made whiskey that somebody had brought. 
And you were there and Stacy and our friend Karen Burnham and Peter Straub and, and Neil Gaiman. And we started talking and you started saying something about George MacDonald, which absolutely fascinated me. And then word got around that Neil Gaiman was in our room and it was all over. Uh, <laughs> to quote Neil himself, when the wolves come out of the walls, it's all over. Um, <laughs> and when, So anyway. That's a little harsh, Gary. Poor Neil Gaiman fans. Leave them alone. Well, it's just that, you know, we... It's, there was nothing. There was a perfectly nice group of people. We had a nice conversation afterwards. We, as, as literary members, we talked about the Holocaust. Before that, we'd started talking a little bit about what you read when you're sort of getting into this field. Mm. And and Lily, what you had mentioned specifically was George MacDonald. Um, and what fascinated me about that was I was amazed that you'd ever heard of George MacDonald. But then I started thinking, okay. People in my generation, and I suspect in Jonathan's generation, had a kind of standard way of getting into science fiction and fantasy. Everybody read Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, and probably, uh, you know, if you were into horror and fantasy, Lord Lord Dunsany and Lovecraft and so forth and so on. And it occurred to me that I don't know how people your age start. So I was kind of startled when you mentioned George MacDonald. And I think you st- what you started to say at the moment we got interrupted was that you'd started reading his children's fairy tales, Victorian fairy tales, and then discovered his adult fantasy novels. Is that correct? I, you know, I cannot tell you what order I discovered all the works in because that was over 10 years ago and my memory is really bad. I was reading um, a bunch of works of his. I remember I, I remember the Golden Key, uh, the, Curdy, the Curdy books, um, mm-hmm. and the Goblin reading the Goblin books and uh, fantasies. And I think I might have read Lilith, but I can't recall clearly. I also did read some Lord Dunsany. Now, my question is, how did you come across this? Because this is not the sort of thing that you pick up in your average high school library. I may have picked, up, picked it up in my average New Jersey public library, actually. And I, I could very well be mistaken about it, but I do think I got to Lord Dunsany and George MacDonald uh, as in self-defense, because I was one of those uh, old codgers who didn't like Tolkien. <laughs> and when you're faced with a bunch of friends insisting that Tolkien is a father of fantasy, you, you kind of have to go back a bit further and say, no, I found other people who can be the progenitors of fantasy, and I like them better. So there. <laughs> Good. Good for you. I mean, it's. I guess that's that, that has to do with part of what I'm talking about. That, Yeah, for, for the last, well, 50 years, it's been, you know, you read Tolkien or you don't get admitted to the club. And you just well, fought do, back. You think that, do you think that's true? Isn't it, you know, the, I thought these days the story went that you either loved and adored Tolkien, which I never did either, Lily, or uh, you loved and adored uh, Mervyn Peake. I thought those were your two choices. Who is the second name? Mervyn Peake. Gormengast. Uh, Gormengast. The whole new weird that's crowd all came out of uh, Mervyn Peake. I am horribly underread. Just so you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but you're you're not underread because you're obviously uh, there, there's a great deal of sort of literary resonance uh, in some of your recent stories. I mean, I was I was speaking of recent stories. You've starting out with one story. Now you've had what four out already this year? I think and, three this. Uh, okay, three. Um, no, no, not was, four. Did four. I screw that up? 
Lost with Chalk Diagrams came out at Eclipse. Ilsa, who saw clearly, came out at Apex. The Forgetting Shiraz at Boston Review. And the Hiroshima Effect at Clark's World. And that's why I don't do physics anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't involved with setting the metric sort of uh, imperial conversion on the uh, space, on that uh, probe, were you? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, never touched. Promise. But also, to get back to this fairy tale thing, and, and, well, Dunsany wrote short fantasies, but I I just read today, I just read also... um, who saw clearly, which really reads like a 19th century German Märchen. Uh, it has that same flavor. It has uh, the kind of inventiveness. It's very cold. Uh, and I, had you read things like, and it, it clearly takes place somewhere in Germany because somebody's reading uh, Schiller in it, uh, or Austria or Switzerland or something. So had you been reading earlier literary fairy tales and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I, I grew up on on Andrew Lang, uh, Peralt, Gr- the Brothers Grimm, all these ah. gorgeous Hans Hans Christian Andersen, all these gorgeously illustrated books of with terrible, terrible stories. Like when I say terrible, I mean terrifying. Uh, I was well and properly spooked before I turned five, I think. <laughs> I, I love them, yes. And that that was um, that story. Ilse, I actually wrote in high school the first draft of that. Really and. Yes, and it was probably the last and best of the various awful fairy tale renditions I was doing at the time. Do you see I, I, go ahead. I was going to say, do you see it as the kind of thing you're going to continue writing, or, or as a odd sort of leftover from what you were writing before? I don't know. I'm open to both possibilities. I actually um, kind of forgave myself for, for fairy tales after reading A.S. Byatt. Uh-huh. You, you know, the Jenna the Dentingill's Eye? Yeah. Uh-huh. And in Possession, where she writes her own fairy tales, is completely unabashedly proud of, of these fairy tales and drops them into stories that mainstream readers would, would be more likely to call adult. Mm-hmm. And so that was a fantastic use of them that I would love to do someday. Is that, in a sense, what you're doing with the Hiroshima effect when you're dropping in the uh, mythic story the wife is telling to the husband? I'm not actually sure what I was doing with the, with the Urashima effect. It was a fairy tale I'd read, I'd read a long time ago, and I found out perhaps last year that uh, there the, another name for time dilation was the was the Urashima effect, and it went from there. Okay. Oh, that's real. I, I, I didn't know whether that was made up for the story or that's actually in use. It is um, definitely in use. But that's uh, what Jonathan was saying. Is this is this is something which in in some ways um, is a is a familiar science fiction setting and. In the middle of the setting, there is a story, uh, which is, is is clearly a folktale. So that, so that in effect, I don't know. I don't know if you've had any re- feedback to that story. It's it's only been out for a relative. Well, it's been out for a few months, but in a sense, you're tricking a science fiction reader into reading a fairy tale. I thought that was what Catherine Valenti did, did all the time. It is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Catherine loves to do that. Uh, that's absolutely true, and I think more and more people are doing it, um, which raises the other issue of um, how do you how do you get from growing up with fairy tales and that sort of thing to knowing uh, to, to writing science fiction because the other two the other stories uh, that one and um, well I guess lost with chalk diagrams is, is a science fiction story really it deals with you know yeah. carving out memories and removing them and that sort of thing what was your science fiction reading like 
you're pretty bad. Okay. Gary was just asking what your background was in reading science fiction, given yes. that there's and more. Is no, that was her spot. answer. It was pretty bad. Oh. Uh, I was a Ray Bradbury girl. I read pretty much everything that Ray Bradbury ever wrote. Okay. And I just have not been able to sink my teeth in, into the triumvirate. Well, I, 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 well I, but do you really think you need to a, a, anymore? I, I don't know. I don't know. There's a kind of legitimacy that comes from knowing where, where people have been before you. And I'm reading The Forever War by Joel Haldeman right now, which is to, to, to let you know where I am in the vast uh, mm. a, a stack of unread books. But I, I have not been... I've tried a few times to get into Asimov and Heinlein and Clark, and I just have not been able to. But I don't think that's at all unusual, uh, particularly if you'll forgive me for saying for readers of your generation. Um, I, uh, what I've found more and more is that with the passage of time, that triumvirate of writers are seen as being less and less relevant, less and less accessible to you know, modern readers entering the field. Um, I don't want to make it all about age because I don't think that's what it is. I think it's when you get around to first encountering science fiction and fantasy. And I mean, like I was seven in 1972 or three or whatever it was when I encountered Robert Heinlein. Uh, and it's a very different thing from being in your early twenties in 2013 and encountering it because it's got to at least seem very archaic and dry, I would think. Possibly. I can't remember the last time I bounced off Highland, so I don't remember my new compressions. Yeah. I do I do know that most of my friends, when I was growing up, had read Asimov. Yeah. Perhaps not Highland Clark, but Asimov definitely. He has, he has not changed as a pillar of the field. That's- he hasn't, but I, I think people entered the field, and I was uh, I was actually more like you, Lily, and I, I thought for a long time that there were basically two kinds of science fiction readers, those that started with Bradbury and possibly Sturgeon and a handful of others, uh, and those that started with Heinlein and Asimov. And it it took a while for each group to start reading in the other area because I had – it took me a while to get into Heinlein. I, I – like you, I'd read everything I could get my hands on by Bradbury for years and didn't care that much for Heinlein. Asimov – I – reading Asimov was enjoyable. They were all well-crafted puzzles, but essentially it, the stories felt like doing a, a crossword puzzle. They were ingenious but you know, basically flat in terms of character. So I think that there still may be that kind of div- division. You know, people who start um, with, with with Bradbury get sensitive to prose, and then you run up against Asimov, and the prose doesn't hold up that well. People who people who start off with Heinlein and Asimov come to Bradbury and think he doesn't have a clue about science. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> What's wrong with this man? That's a pretty persuasive interpretation. Mm. Um, and it. So, so so basically, your entry into the field was from the literary side more than from the science side. More literary and fantastical, I'd say, yeah. and fairy tale. Which is oh, why you're. Mm-hmm. Well, it it seems to me that you're uh, you're, you're not the first of a generation of writers, and that, that there have been writers like this for decades, but who just. Don't you? You just don't seem interested in, in in drawing lines between science fiction, fantasy, fairy tales, mainstream fiction, whatever. Hmm. Could be laziness on my part, but I feel like I. It gives me more options. If I if I don't label this this or that genre, then there's fewer expectations going in. And the work I've seen, especially from mainstream writers like Karen Russell, mm-hmm. uh, Juno Diaz, that that bunch, if 
you can do whatever the hell you want without defining genre, and it often comes out with a best of both worlds. Do you find that there's been any kickback, well, any feedback at all in terms of wanting you to define more? I don't feel like there's the same desire in the field that I imagine was there 20 years and more ago to actually come down on either side of that debate. I think it's one of those things which, at least from what I've seen, most people are willing to just set aside, and it's only critics and reviewers who really get um, invested in the question. I don't, I, I don't think readers particularly care. It's, I feel like it's an academic question. Yeah. And, and it really well, matters if you're academic and you're going to categorize things, but if you're a reader, you know what you like and you're going to find more of it no matter what it is. And I have to say that as a reader, what I, what I find is that unless you only read in a particularly small, discrete area, whether it be within the field or, or not, uh, anything that picks up multiple elements of it is something that you're more likely, or that you're likely to respond to well, because you appreciate the disparate elements that are involved, and the fact that they've been brought together in a particular combination or not isn't a, a matter of enormous concern to you. That sounds plausible. That sounds like a very reasonable position. <laughs> There's, it, it just, it's just not very, sh it's not shared very widely. I'm just thinking of the New Yorker science fiction issue, mm -hmm. as well as something David uh, Hartwell mentioned once, which is that he does not have time to keep up with the fantastical work that's appearing in non-genre magazines such as Tin House. Yeah, see, I, the, that, that, that's a dangerous position to take, I think. You know, I think that, uh, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like the, the field has, has blurred and changed, and uh, the, all these boundaries and edges and whatever are much more permeable than they were. And you're every bit as likely to see a major fine piece of genre work appear in Tin House or Conjunctions or uh, The New Yorker or wherever else as you are in the pages of Clark's World or Asimov's. I think that's right. You know? Well, I think that the, the, there are obviously different attitudes toward, toward whether the field ought to have fences around it or not, and that that comes up, uh, actually, it's, it's an issue that you have to deal with every year, Jonathan, when you're looking at the best of the year, and, and David deals with it from his perspective, and you know, and Rich Horton and others do, but there, there is a sense now that um, you, can't, you can't read all the science fiction that's out there, even in the genre magazines, and especially with the online magazines and so forth and so on. Most of us can anyway, and I think it's not a defense of David, but I think just as a practical matter, he decided he's going to focus on what he sees as community publications. I'm oh, not sure. meaning words that's, in his that's mouth. That's how I understood him as saying that. And yes, I am complete. I, I am absolutely befuddled as to how you do what you do every year, Mr. Strain. <laughs> well, it's. I have to say, I, I, it's it's harder and harder. I mean, uh, I was just. I was going to say, you know, sort of talking, but the truth is complaining and or whining would be a reasonable way of putting it about the fact that there is a plethora, an enormous plethora right now of uh, anthologies and collections and odd places where stories show up. And I'm developing a, a mild hatred of Kickstarter, I think. Um, not, not because, you know, it, it's, it's not fine, but it, it's funding just billions of books. And... You've got no way of keeping track of them or finding them. I mean, I don't know how you'd find them as a market, as a writer, never mind for me as a reader. I mean, that, I mean obviously you've got a relationship, Lily, with Clark's World, uh, which is terrific. And, you know, you've, you've published the Kenyan Review a couple of times. So you, and you got, you'd be aware of the field, but there's got to be just a billion places out there and you've got no idea where to send a story. 
I usually know where to send stories. I'm I'm thinking as a as a reader, especially yeah. as there's someone coming to reading every single year, pretty much everything in the field, that gets overwhelming. It does. It gets overwhelming, and I have to say, every now and again, it get it wears you down a little bit. Uh, and you sit, I sit there going, gosh, I'd like to go off and read um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer or uh, read more books about whatever else or even just read novels for a chunk of time because they look nice. And when you start seeing multiple iterations of an unattractive theme for, in, in, on various anthologies, uh, that becomes, you know, like if you suddenly saw sort of, I don't know, Monkeys as Mechanics, you know, and you get three volumes of that p- pumped out by different people. That would get a little bit wearing and dispiriting. I mean, uh, there are basically, I think this year, there are two separate science fiction disco anthologies. Right? Disco? Yeah, yeah. Basically. I'm glad, you, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely on board with it. I mean, as the, the problem with it, and this is what uh, you know, Ch- Charles Brown used to basically say, you know, there's a donkey in there somewhere. And the problem is with all these books is there's always a good chance that they'll have one or two terrific stories. So you have to look. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it can get on fun. But then the great thing is that you, you stumble across a, you know, a story by someone, n- new to you at least, whether it be, be a, you know, uh, a Ken Liu or whether it's, you know, the cartographer wasps or whatever else it is. And that makes it all worthwhile. You know, that, that's, that's the joy of it, I think. Well, Lily, when you're sending a story out, I mean, that, uh, I don't know if this is an issue anymore. Um, you know, for decades, if you wanted the science fiction community to read your story, you would go to one of the major print magazines. You would go to, you know, FNSF or, um, or um, Analog or, or, or Asimov's. And now that no longer is true, I think. And when you, when you take a story, well, let's take, the, I'm looking at the last couple of stories apparently that have appeared. The Hiroshima effect goes to Clark's world, which is an obvious place to reach um, serious readers of the genre. I mean, Clark's world has developed a really respectable audience, and it has to be considered one of the major science fiction magazines now. But The Forgetting Shiraz, which is a story I want to talk about because I'm using Shiraz for that purpose at this very moment, (laughs) is in the Boston Review. Now, which is a nice literary audience, but how are your science fiction friends going to find that story? I have them all listed on my website, and I'm hoping someday I get to shove them all in a book and say, hey, have fun. I have no idea what's in here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How did you come to be writing for the Boston Review? That is actually a very uh, interesting story. Um, So uh, back in freshman year, we we had a college-sponsored trip to hear Juno Diaz read at uh, Ryder University. And the last minute, the people organizing the trip decided they would they were not going to the reading, and so they would go to a restaurant in New Brunswick instead and discuss the book. And I said, hell no, and hopped on the bus and went down to Ryder. And uh-huh. I heard him talk, and it was the most incredibly down-to-earth, uh, eye-opening t- talk I'd ever heard, heard any writer give. And I, I'd read uh, The Brief Wonder's Life of, of Juno Diaz, and that was the book yeah. that reconciled yeah, me to while. being a writer, a writer in New yeah. Jersey. Yeah. That's not, you know, as oh, a writer. Right. That's such a New Jersey novel, too, isn't it? Yes, yes, and it was seeing somebody do something so magical with a place that I, I come to take for granted, and worse than take for granted, not not really wish to be a writer from. Um, so it gave me a, it gave me a very strong grounding, uh, and I, I told him this, and he told me to go read the Bridges of Mad of, no, there is, 
damn it, the, the British of Patterson County, I believe, uh, there was an yeah. essay in, in art magazine, which was how he had gotten his grounding in in, in New Jersey as an artistic uh, origin. Yeah. And I read it, but I, I realized that uh, what had what that essay had done for him, his, his, his novel had done for me. And so skip forward four years, and he's giving a reading in Town Hall in Seattle in October. Uh-huh. So I show I show up, uh, and at, and when I get when I get uh, a book signed, uh, I, I had just submitted um, a short story to the Boston Review a few days before that. It's been it's been kind of um, a hope of mine to get published by Juno Diaz in some form or other for several years. Uh, I was really disappointed when the Best American Fantasy uh, series folded because he was slated to be the next editor, and I was hoping I to send something that way. Yeah. Um, so I, I was hoping that someday I, I'd, I'd write something good enough for the Boston Review. And I, I he told me to send something to him. I, I mentioned that I was expecting a, reje- a rejection in 90 days because that's what usually happens. And he said, oh, mm-hmm. uh, send that directly to me. And about three days later, I got an email from him and said, we're taking this. Wow. Cool. So, so Juno was the, the direct editor on the story? No, that was... Uh, damn it. This is embarrassing. Sorry, her name slips... Her, her name slips... Uh, That's her name slips... The editor of the Boston... Yeah. yeah okay. uh, someone I wouldn't know. Juno Diaz is a good example of somebody who... Um, Chasman. Deborah Chasman, sorry. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, but um, he uh, came to ReaderCon a couple of years in a row... Um, and the first year, nobody knew he was going to be there. He was, what I was told, actually by him at the time, was that he came to Redicon because Samuel R. Delaney needed a driver. Um, so he drove him up, and he, he came to the party. And one of the things I had noticed about Oscar Wilde, apart from the fact that it was utterly convincing about New Jersey, which I spent very little time in, was that it was utterly convincing and knowledgeable about science fiction and fantasy. In other words, there are a lot of allusions in that book, uh, to things like everything from Doc Smith to to, to, to to Tolkien characters, that clearly are not going to reach every reader, but they're going to reach they're going to reach the likes of us. Um, and it turned out um, during this party uh, at ReaderCon, which is something they have something called Meet the Prose Party, which basically is a pun because it meets anybody meeting anybody who writes prose, um, and he recognized my name. It turns out he's read Locus. He he recognized John Clute, and we both thought, well, yeah, yeah, he's being really polite. He's really... And then he started arguing with us about stuff we'd written and thought, no, this guy actually has read all this stuff. <laughs> and he really wants to write science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and that piece in The New Yorker, uh, special science fiction issue, was fairly clearly a fragment of you know the, the sort of epic science fiction novel he wants to work on. Monstro, um, yes. Monster, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I think there are a lot of people out there. Michael Chabon is certainly another one uh, who uh, have no problems. I mean, Michael Chabon was apparently as thrilled at his Hugo as well. Maybe not as much as with a Pulitzer Prize, but he certainly sounded like it at the time. Let me ask you ask you this, Lily. Do do you find as as a reader and a writer that the Boundary the, the the boundaries between mainstream and genre fiction that people keep talking about still feel real today. That there's the same bias, prejudice, breakdown between them and us. So I hear a lot about this this prejudice, but I, I do think that that is more or less a thing of the past, especially in the age of George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones on HBO. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, I do know when I was growing up, I, when I went to the Barnes Noble, I always had to find my science fiction uh, and fantasy on, on this one set of shelves and things that were not science fiction and fantasy on another set of shelves. And that was somewhat sometimes confusing, but in some cases, uh, a very clear a very clear statement because doll books are one thing. Mm. Doll books are very are very definitely fantasy, and for a lot of ace books are the same way. Um, whereas there there are others that blur. I think it depends on the book. A lot of them um, cleave to genre conventions, and in that case, it's a very um, convenient denominator. Mm. And then, it, it but that but that uh, split really does not serve the ones that don't. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think it's uh, it does get confusing because uh, you're right. Daw books usually look like one kind of book. Bane books look like another kind of books, and so forth and so on. But then, Daw published. Uh, Nadia Korofor. Um, I did not. And, okay. And, which, yeah, and, and that's partly science fiction. I mean, if if you read Who Fears Death, it's uh, it it's it reads like a fantasy, but it's clearly set in a far future Africa in which there are you know ancient ruins of of computers and caves and things like this. So it's uh, and and I've, and and Nettie has gone back and forth between science fiction and folklore and fantasy and um, and what you might call magic realism um, fairly comfortably, and she's gotten away with it to the tune of getting a world fantasy word for that novel. Do you find that when, well, let me ask you this as well. When you talk to your friends about being a writer, do you talk to, do you describe yourself as being a, a writer or a science fiction writer or a fantasy writer, or how do you see yourself? I don't really talk to my friends about being a writer. <laughs> Good strategy. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure why that is, but I, I for most of, I think the vast majority of my friends, either I, I met them at work or I met them somewhere else or I met them in ballroom or I, I just met them before I, be, before I, I got noticed at all as a writer. Some of them know me that know that I write because I will bake them. I, I used to bake people cookies for reading my stories and give me comments. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's, it's something I do, but it's not, necessarily like who I am every minute of every single day sure and quite, quite frankly, there's not that much interesting about being a writer hi today I sat down and I wrote this many thousand words and I didn't move <laughs> I started the blank yeah. I, I, I have to I have to admit that, that that you're right I mean I think what goes on what you're writing where what's going on inside your head is utterly fascinating but I do I do find myself on Twitter looking at writers who at the end of every day say I wrote 1953 words today and then the next day there's a Twitter I wrote 1620 and I thought I think there's something OCD going on here but it's not telling me a lot about literature or about the nature of this writer I don't think those uh, tweets are meant to be read Gary I think those tweets are statements to themselves public shaming yes I tried that it was very motivational yeah. even if no one else reads it you know that you're you have to Put up your daily count and feel bad about if it's low. Oh, uh, so, oh, that makes sense. It's that a work sense. motivation tool. Yeah. Another Lily, another reason. Uh, for, yeah. Lily. Oh, sorry. Are you? Another reason we're not not necessarily talking to my friends about writing is because I do some pretty embarrassing things um, for the sake of writing that that are not necessarily the things I want to share with my friends in polite conversation because they are they are they are well adjusted normal people. <laughs> what do you for mean? <laughs> it sounds like you're engaging in like Lily, extreme yeah. ironing when you're typing or something, and you're off the side no. of a building. Or <laughs> I, I went 
I went to the Whitney last week, and they have this beautiful Edward Hopper exhibition there, and I, I already have the idea for an Edward Hopper story. And there was some, there was this one thing I had to know for for the logic of the story, and I walked up to the security guard, uh, shaking in my boots, and was like, and I asked him, um, very kind gentleman, he actually answered me, so don't take this the wrong way, but what would happen if uh, somebody tried to start, someone started eating one of the paintings in this room? <laughs> what would what you, what would you do? <laughs> uh, and the answer was, um, apparently they can't do anything if the person eating the painting does not uh, shove them or use any physical force. They, they're only allowed to use exactly as much physical force as, as that person is doing. So yes, it is possible to walk into the Whitney and eat a painting. But That's the guards oh, have God. permission to eat you then? Is that it? <laughs> they, they just have to try to talk you out of it, apparently. Or call um, the police, right? Or call the police, but I'm assuming you finished half the painting by then if you're a fast eater. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, Thomas Harris's novel Red Dragon has pretty much that scene in it. Uh, I will where look the, that up. Look it up. The serial killer is in, I forget which museum it is, and he starts eating one of William Blake's drawings. Which is the drawing that gives the novel its title, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm guessing that Thomas Harris probably checked that out, which may be why we haven't heard from him in years. Um, but <laughs> but that kind of thing. Yeah, so so now you have us wondering what it is that you won't tell your friends uh, because you think about eating Edward Hopper paintings. And if you're writing a story about it, I guess that's a way of eating it, isn't it? <laughs> Things like that. Talking shop usually uh, usually is saying ex uh, externally awkward things in conversation, so I try to avoid that. One of the things that uh, I learned after I started getting involved with professional writers years ago, I mean, not not as a fan, but when people became friends and I'd go to dinner with them and that sort of thing, and I'm talking about really experienced, well-known writers in the field, they're Dinner table conversation was usually terribly dull. When it turned to writing, it was talking about markets, how awful editors were, how late the royalty payments were. Nothing about content, nothing about ideas. If you started to talk about ideas, they would just sort of turn off because that seems to be something internal. It does drain the energy out of an idea somewhat for me if I start, try to talk about it to somebody before I write it down. Mm -hmm. And then there's the also, also the desire to uh, stay a free member of the society and not be committed just yet. <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose there's that. Do you find it's difficult to get other people to talk about their writing in that way, on a, on a creative and mechanical kind of way? I, I, I think so, for probably for the same reasons that I find it difficult to talk about, because it does come out of really strange corners of my brain. I can't tell you where, where these ideas come from. And they're, they're just hard, they're hard to explain. Yeah. I mean, Are you I, finding... Uh, uh, go ahead, Jonathan. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I just, I'm interested because I found a similar thing trying to talk to other people who do what I do beyond the business side of it. Getting people to explain what it is you do and how you do it and why you do it is really difficult when it comes to that area that isn't necessarily uh, black and white rule following. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You, what were you going to say? I was going to say, uh, I was going to ask Lily if now that you're having some rather startling success with short fiction, do you find yourself writing less poetry these days? Mm, I don't. I wouldn't say less poetry so much as I am not going back and revising the poetry, so on the whole, it's worse poetry. <laughs> oh, well, that's... that's an and I'm not sending it out. Mm -hmm. 
I spent I, I spend more time revising my short stories than I do revising my poems these days. So nothing, no, I, I haven't done anything worth publishing. How do you know it's not worth publishing? How do you know when you finish a poem that it's not worth publishing? Deep feelings of embarrassment. Okay. Usually good All right, that's probably a good idea. Probably. Is. I, I was just wondering, one of the things that, when you start opening up fantastic literature, when you can write things that are called magic realism, I want to talk about that term in a minute, or science fiction or fantasy or fairy tales and so forth and so on, that it seems to me a lot of ideas that might at one time have simply been something you could explore in a poem, but not in a mainstream story, now become fodder for fiction as well. In other words, there are a lot of kind of poetic ideas in, well, in your stories, for example. Um, you could look at um, the two stories I'm thinking of in particular that deal, uh, which, which struck me, and I think it struck Jonathan as well, that deal with forgetting uh, the one that you wrote for Jonathan in Eclipse, which was, help me out here, the... Uh, hmm, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, oh, Lost with Chalk Diagrams. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, take advantage of my aging brain. Lost with Chalk Diagrams, that's it. Um, and then the, um, the Shiraz story are both about forgetting, and they both function a lot like poems, it seems to me. I never thought about them as poems, but... There again is the the genre split. Mm -hmm. I I I try, I try to bring a lot of uh, what I do in poetry into prose, and some of the dramatic tension of prose into poetry. Although I'm not as good at that, so I I don't I wouldn't say I think about them any differently, except that one has okay. meter. What was it that attracted you to the idea of editing memory? I was a very sad little kid. I must have been. <laughs> I'm <not sure. laughs> I, I am, I'm not sure. I wrote the Shiraz story um, in college, it must have been, junior year, and I wrote the Lost the Chalk Diagram story a month before I sent it to you. Yeah. So they're actually kind of far apart chronologically. I, yeah. I guess that is just a theme that I, I, come, I come back to like over and over. Well, there's a I big also difference. very forgetful, which... Okay. Is, is something I, I have to question myself about. In a sense, the stories are opposites, though, because the, the Shiraz story, which I had assumed until now was the more recent story, um, we should explain, I guess, because a lot of our listeners won't have seen it. This is about uh, a reporter who goes to a vineyard in New South Wales because the vintner has discovered a Shiraz which apparently you know, destroys memories and, and, and the reporter gets there and the vintner is, is full of bizarre stories about growing the vines and the veins of his arm and this sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it's sort of left with the idea that, well, this is, this is, a, this is an option. It's it sort of left with the idea that being able to edit out your memories is a good thing. But Lost with Chalk Diagrams is a story about somebody who refuses to edit memories and it's much more a science fictional story. Uh, so it seems to me that you've moved from one position to the other, from editing memories might be a good thing to holding on to the pain might be a better thing. Mm, Thus, with chalk diagrams, wasn't so much about memories as, as about feelings. Well, okay, that's, re that's true. You're right. Um, but she does want to hold on to the pain. And she doesn't. Mm, that's true, too. 
But but is it what, what she wants to do? I didn't think it was so much that she wanted to uh, hold on to the pain per, per, per se. It was to hold on to herself and who she was and what she learned about defining herself from the experiences in her life that she'd gone through. I felt. I I I, I actually was considering grief as an, as, as an aesthetic object mm-hmm. because there is music that you there are there there there's music that you can really only hear when when you understand that level of sadness in it and the rush to sanitize our modern lives of unpleasant things is in some ways very good in some ways very awful and i was trying to write as non-judgmental a story as possible about the choice uh you know whether to whether to feel absolutely desolate or to not to feel absolutely desolate to whether you you know Hamlet might have lived longer if he'd gotten professional counseling. Would mm-hmm. that have been a good? Hello. Yes. Hello. Sorry. Oh, you're still there. Okay, we had a drop out there for a second. Ah, uh, yeah. No. So, so yeah. The question is on on the individual level, su- suffering uh, is an awful, awful thing. On the artistic level, it's in some ways very lovely, and there is this tension between. Um, appreciation of it of on one level what it is to what what how human and how lovely it is to be human and able to be able to suffer on the other level there is just that that personal individual desire uh not to have to deal with it or to be able to put it aside and move on see it's interesting because i guess i read the story from a science fiction reader's perspective mm-hmm. so it sat in my mind uh though i can very much see what you're talking about um in the same kind of group of stories as things like Greg Egan's Learning to Be Me, that kind of a thing. Uh, and I don't know if you've read Learning to Be Me or Reason to, to Be Cheerful, but you know that they are uh, about a, a character who can basically choose. You know, they've been, they've been damaged. They've lost any sense, any ability to actually like or dislike things. So they're making objective choices about about what they will be subject become subjective about and how subjectively they will feel about them. Um, and so they're st- using these objective rules to come up st- with structurally who they are as people, if you like. Uh, and one of the things I find interesting about, the, about what you can do with science fiction and fantasy is to do these kind of things, to interrogate who we are as people and, and, and how we are formed and what it means and then how the choices we make form, form us as people, I think. Anyway. So, so should we read from the the growth of your bibliography that you are now having cast aside biophysics, uh, devoting yourself to a lot more writing, and we'll see a lot more stuff coming out. I hope so. I'm still working on the forty year time scale, so I can't tell you exactly when stuff is going to happen. <laughs> I- we had uh, on on our podcast with Mary Rickard and um, Chris Barzak, we had a scoop that Mary Rickard had finished a novel, and you have to be working on a novel. You, you're, not, you're not allowed to have a writer's license without working on a novel. Are you working uh, yes. on a novel? <laughs> okay. I'm stalled on the ending. I'm stalled on the ending. Uh, people keep telling me to kill everybody, but that seems a bit much. Everyone's, everyone's doing that, that, that these days. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's, 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 that's like a formula these days. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting uh, currently at 100,000 words, trying to figure out where to go next. You described, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was in that little uh, that Locus interview that you did um, 
last year. You described that as magic realism. Yes. Are you comfortable with that term? It's it fits me better, I think, than the word fantasy. When you say fantasy, what does it mean in your in your usage of it? Okay, when you say, when you say fantasy, you're always bringing up that that uh, that doppelganger science fiction. Magical yeah. realism is not a very well defined term, which is why I like it so much better than either fantasy or science fiction, both of which have strong connotations of dragons, rockets, aliens, and so on and so forth. But you can, you can shove a, a great deal of fantasy and science fiction into the pockets of magic realism and leave the store and no one will notice you, so to speak. So it, 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 ma- magic realism is like uh, literary fiction running into a store and shoplifting uh, the, the fantasy and science fiction. Oh, that's great. That's a great, that's a great image. I like that a lot. I mean, I, <laughs> Um, I know um, Karen Lord, for example, uh, dislikes the term magic realism quite a bit. And I think that may come from uh, living in Barbados and living in the Caribbean nation in which anything you write, whether it's fantasy or science fiction or straight ahead science fiction like Karen's last novel is, people are going to say it's magic realism and I think the assumption is it's magic realism because, well, you're from Latin America, you're from the islands, you're from a post-colonial country, you're this. So it becomes a way of saving uh, people from being labeled with science fiction or fantasy if they come from the right culture. I can I, I can see that happening. Uh, I, I can to- I can understand why, if you're a Latin American writer and you're writing fantasy or science fiction, you would not want to be called a magic realist if that's not what you're actually doing. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard this from. Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, but um, if you're not if you're not under that burden, and I, I am fortunate not, not not to be under under any assumptions. I, look, I'm an Asian American woman. What kind of what kind of uh, non-realist writing do Asian American women do? You can't you can't really give a categorical answer there. Uh, so I, I I just work in like the not the non-realist spaces, and magic realism is probably the best term for all the spaces that are not realist. I hate I, I, I hate writing realism. Oh, that was the next question I was going to have, uh, because with the sense that genres don't really, in some sense, exist anymore for a writer, you don't feel that you're likely just to write a mainstream story. I suppose I could, but I there is a kind of subgenre in literary fiction that is a, a gritty, almost relentlessly realist world, say, think of... Francis the Corrections, where it's joyless, mm. it's emphatically loveless, a world completely stripped of any kind of wonder whatsoever. That's the kind of book I, I have a very difficult time reading, and it would probably kill me to write. Mm. But you'd mentioned Juno Diaz and stories, uh, not just uh, Oscar Wilde, but the stories in This Is How You Lose Her, are very vibrant and very alive, and some way have a have a sense of adventure stories, even though they're also in a fairly depressed, realistic environment. Um, and he still gets yeah. that level of energy into them. Yes. And I, I think there is a level of energy uh, in science fiction and fantasy that can bleed into main, uh, mainstream fiction, such as Diaz, Diaz's stories or A.S. Byatt, even without explicit uh, elements of magic mm-hmm. in the stories that, because I, I feel like a lot of literary fiction um, these days is somewhat enervated, and the most powerful stuff I've read has been influenced 
or the writer has been influenced, even if that particular work has not by the, by uh, fantasy and science fiction. That's an interesting thought. I, I I'm inclined to agree with that, uh, even though I'm not coming up with any solid evidence to support it. I think you're probably right. I um, reserve the right to withdraw that statement in embarrassment. No, in a future no I, I, <laughs> there's there, there there's a kind of um, and Jonathan and I have talked about once or twice before on the podcast. There's a kind of non-science fiction, science fiction, something that has the energy and the inventiveness of science fiction. Maybe uh, some of Richard Powers' novels do this. There's a kind of non-fantasy fantasy where it has all the energy and imaginativeness of fantasy, but isn't materially fantastic. A few uh, Earlier in the podcast, Jonathan was mentioning Mervyn Peake, yeah. who is a huge influence on China Mieville and, 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 and Mike Harrison and a lot of uh, the writers associated with The New Weird. And yet, if you actually look at Mervyn Peake's novels, it's very hard to find a point where they move into a fantastic realm. They're about the the the, the, the trilogy of novels are about this enormous rambling castle called Gormenghast, uh, which is extremely unlikely. But I don't think there's any point in the first two novels where it crosses the line into impossibility or actual fantasy. Yeah. Um, and I think the same thing is true of um, you. Something like Michael Chabon's *The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay* uh, is completely informed by the energy of writing a Superman comic, even though it's a realistic novel. Uh, and and he's somebody who obviously loves and appreciates science fiction and fantasy and pulp fiction, for that matter. So so I think you're right. In other words, I think there is a kind of mainstream writer, and the most I think Karen Russell. Is probably one of these, except I've heard that Karen Russell doesn't, I don't know if this is true or not, doesn't like to be associated with fantasy or science fiction. I have no idea. I, I, I think her work does associate itself with, with fantasy and science fiction. I have no idea what her personal opinions are, are, are of it. Yeah. I, love her, I love her work very much. Uh, there's also, you know, Never Let Me Go. Um, Ishigawa. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm searching in my head. I think I think a lot of what I love about AS AS Byatt's pure literary novels is the is the fa- fantastical charge she has in them. Uh, man. So There's, what do uh, you want? We're into. Go ahead and finish. You got other ideas? Other other titles? Colson Whitehead, The Intuitionist. Okay. And I cannot think of anything else off the top of my head at the moment. What do you like to read? I mean, if you just you have no obligations to review anything or read something for class, and you, you and, and you, you don't have to read something because you're going to be on a podcast. You just walk into a bookstore. What are you going to go for? Terry Pratchett, uh, Lindsay Davids, Laurie R. King. Probably one of those. I I, I, I read widely, but that's my candy. Uh huh. Well, uh, that's, that, but that's that's candy is what makes you a writer. I think it's everything. There's a famous quotation, um, and the reason I'm saying it's a famous quotation is because it's been attributed to everybody from Einstein to Winston Churchill, but it's actually a quotation from the English novelist John Cooper Powis, who wrote bizarrely fantastic sort of regional novels in the early 20th century, who said that after you've... After, uh, what's the quotation? Your culture is what you have left over after you've forgotten everything you deliberately set out to learn. In other words, the things you remember that you're not supposed to remember. 
or that you haven't set out to remember. That establishes taste. Terry Pratchett, you mentioned, for example, I suspect is one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. But I suspect he's influential for a lot of writers who don't even want to acknowledge the influence. Who would not want to acknowledge the influence of, of Sir Terry? Well, okay, now that he's Sir Terry, maybe people <laughs> acknowledge But for a long time, Discworld? Come on. It was the delight of my, it was the delight of my, my uh, school days. Still is. Still is. But now, now I have to reread everything instead of reading the new books. How so? Yeah. You, don't, you, you don't find they shine quite as much? Uh, no, no, it's not that. It's just I finished everything he's written. So I have to reread them. Ah, well, there is a new one just out. There, ah, uh, yes, the the, cl- the collaborative one. Yeah, the Long Earth. Okay, I have to find that. That's, yeah, it's not a Discworld novel. No, no, but it's That's a project a, novel. It's a, well, it's mostly a Stephen Baxter novel. Okay. I have to say, Stephen as Baxter. a as a digression, Lily, how do you feel about Rihanna Pratchett writing Discworld? You know, I don't. I'm not really. Um, aware of much of her, her literary work. I'm aware of her work as a game writer. Yeah. Uh, I was, I still am a game writer. I'm actually um, doing some freelance consulting for Tale of Tales right now mm-hmm. uh, after I left Bungie. And, you know, if there's a source of Discworld somewhere, it might as well be her. I'm more interested in having the series continue, although okay. it's never going to be the same, no matter who, t- who takes it on. As a reader, though, I, I would like to see it keep going. Yeah, I, I I don't know anything about her as a game writer or as a continuer of the series, but I there's something just viscerally in me that suggests somebody whose commitment to her dad is more important than her commitment to the publisher, because when series get, I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not at all demeaning let's say Brandon Sanderson here, but when series are continued for largely commercial purposes, they don't seem to have the same kind of familial commitment that uh, that I would hope she would have if she continues the series. I would say there's a lot there's probably a lot more trust in that relationship than say with any other any other writer who's not related. Yeah, I would think so as well. Yeah. Um, Which I mean, McCaffrey, uh, I I know from having the one time I met Anne McCaffrey, she was absolutely delighted that Todd was interested in her work and was willing to continue it and whatever one thinks about Todd's own fantasy or his own continuations of her work it's clearly out of love and loyalty and in the spirit of Anne McCaffrey's original work hmm. I haven't actually read Todd McCaffrey's work I've only read uh, his, his mother's yeah me too well I've read yeah. a little of Todd's work but no I'm just I'm just interested in I realize it's a significant digression it's just because I don't know I'm, I I think that if anyone is going to do it I think it's great that it's her Part of me goes, how do, it's it's like it's like someone writing P.G. Woodhouse now, right? Um, yeah. h- how yeah. do you do that? Because so much of the the, the Discworld isn't about the Discworld. The Discworld tribute anthology, I think, would be a a boring and dull thing because what makes the Discworld the Discworld is the mindset of Terry Pratchett and nothing else. That that that's what we all respond to, I think. His sense of humor, his odd worldview, whatever else it is. And, and yeah, yeah, his voice. I think you're right. I think there's a there's a tone to those worlds, to those novels, which is. And I've not read all. I've not read nearly as many of them as both both of you have. I just, I don't know why. I just read a, read a few at the beginning. I certainly read Good Omens and that sort of thing. But there is a very very distinctive voice in that, which 
I don't think anybody else will be able to do. No. no. Actually, I think you're right. Yeah, sorry. Continue. I, I think you're right about that. But I mean, the world is so the world is so like very well defined and 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 varied and and diverse that it'd be sad to see it end in a way. Even if the voice, even if the the animating voice is gone. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess as as we drift towards the end of our hour of, of of nattering and chatting, I do want to ask. I mean, are there stories already in train out there in the world that we should be keeping our eye out for? Is it you know, sort of what's next in print, as it were? I have uh, nothing that is as that is slated to be published yet. I have a, I think six stories in submission. The longest one is at over four hundred days, I believe. Wow. Uh, Gulf Coast magazine. If you're if you're listening to this, come on, hurry up. <laughs> uh, but yes, nothing 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 slated for publication yet. Um, I, I may be participating in a couple of kickstarted anthologies. I'm sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I can't cast myself completely as the victim in this, but still, I don't know. <laughs> I do, do sometimes I do feel like it's something not so much done by them as done to me, but still, that's probably taking it too personally. <laughs> but as, as as we're recording this, though, is the the Urashima effect is out in this month's. It's out now, right? yes. It's 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 it's, 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 a, it's a current story. It's a brand new story, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it other than in terms of the uh, the folktale within it. But it's also a kind of really elegiac story about being alone on a spacecraft, and it just gets sadder and sadder and sadder, and. It, uh, I, I don't know. This is one of the things that also fascinates me. There is a small tradition of stories about people being alone on spaceships um, and possibly going mad. I mean, Cordwainer Smith had written stories about the what he called the up and out, the madness of the up and out. There's a class, classic story by James Blish called Common Time. And the idea that being isolated for so long, going to an extrasolar planet, uh, could drive you mad is is not particularly a new idea, and that's not a criticism of the story, because it's an idea that needs to be handled in an infinite number of ways, which I think is one of the things that's attractive about science fiction themes. Um, it's a, uh, and, and, and the idea of um, sort of inserting a folktale into that um, with, with a kind of additional cultural meaning, I thought was fascinating. Um, uh, can... Ken Liu did something vaguely similar in Mono Noawari, which is, again, a fairly familiar space adventure with a kind of cultural overlay that that story form had never seen before. So I'm, it's, this is a roundabout way of saying I like your story. Thank you. I have to say I like it very much as well. We'll we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, I mean, uh, the forget the forgetting Shiraz is also in the latest issue of the Boston Review. And mm-hmm. Ilsa, who saw clearly, is in the latest issue of um, Apex. So, lots of lots for people to read uh, from you until you do get the next story out. But and please keep us up to date with what's what's happening, so we can tell everybody. And may, maybe, are you going to go to World Fantasy this year, Lily? Uh, probably not. I'm going to ah. be uh, in grad school at that point. Ah. Oh dear. So, will you make ReaderCon this summer or the Locus Awards? I, I will be at the Locus Awards. I'll see you at the Locus Awards. I'm I'll in Clarion. Yes, I'm in Clarion West for the summer. Okay. Oh, great. As a teacher or? <laughs> no, as a student. I appreciate oh, the comments, wow. so. Okay, this is, you're going to be one of those people that intimidates the other students. No, wow. no. Uh, Helena Bell's there. She got a Nebula nomination this year, and a couple people have novels coming out. Oh, wow. Okay. I, yeah, I, I am going to be intimidated. <laughs> Happily intimidated. 
Who are, you, who are your teachers this year? Uh, Ellen Datlaw, Neil Clark, Elizabeth Hand, uh, Samuel Delaney, Joe Whoa. Hill, and Margot Lanigan, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't isn't Neil teaching for a week? Yes. Did I not, did I not mention? So, yeah. Uh, that should be fun. It should be a lot of fun, and I, I look forward to seeing you actually in just a few weeks now. Yeah, in two weeks, I think. Okay, great. Or perhaps I'll see you another year. I hope so. It was nice to meet you on the podcast, at least. It was. It very much indeed. Right. Okay. Well, until then, thank you very much, Lily, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the, for the delightful hour. <laughs> I, I, I hey. love that. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, Gary, um, I will talk to you, as always, next week. Next week, we will have another podcast with any luck. We'll have another guest. Yep. Maybe not as delightful as Lily, but another guest. And we'll see if, if, if he listens to that. He's going to be hurt now. He's not going to do it. We don't know. Why don't, did you just, say that? Say why why did you say that? In the pod. <sighs> and now, as always, we remain the Mullers of Quid Street. Thank you.